Luke tells a story about the life of Jesus that stands out from the other Gospels. Frankly, I often find the picture he paints of Jesus confusing, even severe. But the most distinctive feature of this Gospel, at least on a uh, structural level, is that Jesus is on the road in Via. For nearly half the story, in fact, from Luke 9 to Luke 19, Jesus is walking from Galilee to the north, in the north, to Jerusalem in the south, where he knows his life will end. Scholars call this unit the travel narrative. It's like Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. Instead of a standard poodle, Jesus is being followed by a roving band of disciples, admirers, and adversaries. Some mix of all three surround Jesus when we find him in Luke 13. And they report the ancient equivalent of clickbait. Jesus. Jesus. Did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Pilgrims from Galilee were in the temple and they were slaughtered alongside their sheep and pigeons and doves. Their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. This was as sacrilegious as it was tragic. Perhaps not so different than the two churches bombed on Palm Sunday in Egypt two years ago. Or Muslims shot down leaving midday prayer two weeks ago. Do you see how Jesus responded? No one ever spoke like this man. When presented with problems, he dealt with people, addressing the deepest fears and thoughts and aches of the human heart. And his speech was salted with fire. This is one of those challenging texts from Luke. And I want to try and help us see three things here. A strong warning, a universal invitation, and a plea for grace. First, a strong warning. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem, and many who are following him are Galileans. So the shocking news that comes to him is not just a relay of information. There are profound questions hovering in the air. What does this tragedy mean? And... Is this the beginning of something worse? You see, throughout his ministry, Jesus has warned people that those who refuse his message will bring woe and disaster upon themselves. And so the crowd is wondering, was Pilate's act of brutality 
a sign that those Galileans were being punished. And Jesus says, not exactly. The pilgrims killed in the temple were not being singled out, but, and Jesus says this twice, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Likewise. That's an important word. When you're confronted with confusing, challenging texts, one way to get at it is to ask, what would Jesus' original hearers have heard? Like, what would Jesus' words have meant to them? And did you notice that Luke takes pains to highlight the identity of the people who died in the temple? Why? Perhaps because Galileans were known in Jesus' day for being particularly aggrieved by the Roman occupation and zealous for revolution. Pilate's actions, therefore, may have been a strong-arm tactic meant to intimidate perceived agitators. Jesus, speaking to Galileans, may be saying something like, if you don't change agendas and abandon your plan to rise up against the occupying forces, then you're going to suffer a similar fate. If you take up the sword, you'll die by the sword. Or if not the sword, Jesus continues, you'll be crushed by the buildings in Jerusalem when the city is razed to the ground. You know, what happened to the 18 who died? The Tower of Siloam was purely accidental. But Jesus is saying, if you don't accept my way of exercising power, my way of bringing the kingdom of God, then even those who escape Roman swords will likewise perish as the enemy lays siege to the city and its very walls collapse. So, unlike a strictly historical level, I think what Jesus is doing is he's warning Israel of the terrifying and very real consequences of rising up against Rome. And unless they accept his way of being the peaceable people of God, they'll likewise perish. Cool history lesson. How do we apply this warning to us? I think the key is that word, perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What does it mean? Oftentimes in the New Testament, that word perish just means to die. And it does mean that, does mean that here. But I think it means more than that. Because Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. In other words, if you do repent, you will not perish. 
It must mean something more than physical death. And in light of what Jesus and the scriptures say elsewhere, I think we can take this passage to mean that when we reject Jesus to go our own way, it carries significant consequences. I take perish here to refer to some judgment after death. In the same way that Jesus' original hearers would experience the bitter repercussions of refusing his message. Those who refuse Jesus' offer of forgiveness and new life in our day will reap what they sow. They'll get what they want, life apart from God. I think it was C.S. Lewis who, who talked about the fate of those who die apart from the Lord as a kind of prison locked from the inside. A cold, dark, self-inflicted misery. I'm not going to get into thorny debates about what all that might entail. I don't think Peter would appreciate me doing a crappy teaching about hell and having half our people leave the church. At the same time, I want to speak plainly about what Jesus makes clear. Unless you repent, you will perish. It's a strong warning. There's also an invitation, a way out. The alternative to living apart from Jesus is to live with him and in him and through him. And the door into this kind of life, Jesus says, is repentance. And what I want to stress here in this second point is not a transactional one-time payment of only $99 kind of repentance. I want to talk about repentance as a way of life, a habit, a way of making it through the world. Repentance that's relevant in all times and in all seasons. It's the type of repentance that Martin Luther talked about on the first of the 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. He said, when Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What does that mean? Repentance as a way of life. Jesus is focusing immediately here on repentance in the face of tragedy. There was a tower in Siloam that fell. Some people were injured. Some people surely walked away unharmed. But 18 people who were either in it or around it died. And the question that inevitably arises is why did that happen to them. Were the ones who suffered 
somehow worse than the ones who were spared? Are people who struggle worse than those who don't? Now, a lot of you are very smart people. This type of thinking defies logic and reason, but it's an instinct. It's a reflex. I've had profound disappointments in my life, personally and professionally. And I'm sure many of you have. I don't know, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so have you. And what do we say? We're almost hardwired to ask, why is this happening to me? Am I being punished, refined? Why not him? Why not her? Am I somehow worse? Jesus says, I tell you, no. I tell you, no. When bad things happen, when you're hurting and disappointed, the right response is not to look to other people, not to compare yourself, but to repent. Awful things happen, and when you see them, repent. On the flip side, I've had some pretty good things happen to me, personally and professionally. And so have many of you. But my experience leads me to believe that we do a very similar thing. To quote one commentator, from superior circumstances, we infer superior character. Why was I singled out for promotion? How have I ended up with such a wonderful life? It must be because I work harder than other people, or I'm more decent, more deserving. I tell you, no. We repent in the face of good things as much as in bad. This is what Scripture teaches us. In Romans 2, verse 4, Paul says, Do not presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, when good things happen to you, when the tower doesn't fall, when your plane lands safely, when you get a big raise or your dream wedding day, this is God's kindness, and it's supposed to lead you to repentance. It's a universal invitation. It's always an order. Instead of looking around and comparing ourselves to other people, the Bible tells us that the way to process life is to repent, to remember who we were and to remember who we are, broken people, dearly loved by God. We don't process anything good or anything bad apart from that lens of repentance. Now, that can, this sounds, I fear, a little abstract, a little churchy. What does this lifestyle of repentance really look like in practice? I don't have a lot of soapboxes, but I have one of them. And here, I'm about to climb it. <laughs> the church in our world would be much healthier and much more fruitful if it looked and felt more like AA. Have you ever been to an AA meeting? At an AA meeting, at their best, it's different ethnicities, different classes, very different kinds of people 
who come together and talk openly and honestly about how God has changed their lives and enabled them to do that which they could never do before. And the entire enterprise is built on an admission of weakness. You gain control of your life through an act of surrender. And whether you've been sober for 40 years or for three days, everyone is at the same level. Everyone begins by admitting that they're powerless and their life has become unmanageable. It's repentance without jargon. And it's the key to making our way through life. If one word from our text is a strong warning, the second word is, is an invitation to not perish, but to repent in good times and in bad times. Whether you're crushing it or you're being crushed, the response is the same. You go to a meeting, you admit you're powerless. You turn your life over to the Lord. You accept the way of the cross. Jesus is saying, this kind of repentance is how we make it through all that life throws at us. It's a universal invitation. Finally, a plea for grace. Where do we see this? We see it in the parable of the fig tree that immediately follows Jesus' words to the crowd. I know we just heard it very quickly. So you might have missed that there are two main characters in that story. There's the landowner and there's the vine dresser. The landowner has a large vineyard and he keeps careful records. He knows which trees are productive and which trees are not. He planted a fig tree a while ago and every fall, and every spring for the last three years, he has checked on the fig tree and it has borne no fruit. It's barren. The landowner tells the vine dresser to cut it down. I want to say that fig tree is a symbol of human beings with a cloud of futility hanging over us. It's a picture of us when we refuse to repent, when we choose our way over Jesus' Jesus's way. And in the logic of the parable, we expect the fig tree to be removed, to perish. We expect, it's that Johnny Cash song, we expect God to cut them down. Why should the tree use up the ground? But there's a complication in the story. There's a ray of hope. The vine dresser intercedes with the landowner. What if I can get this tree to come back to life? Sir, he says in verse 8, let it alone. That is a plea for grace, for patience. This tree should be cut down. It should perish, but give it time. Let it alone. Now that verb, let it alone, it's used throughout the New Testament. 
and it's often translated forgive. And it shows up again in Luke's gospel just a few chapters later in a verse that we have all heard. Jesus on the cross says, Father, let them alone. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you see the patient, kind, forbearing, willing to get his hands dirty vine dresser? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. He's the word made flesh who moved into the neighborhood. He's the gardener of our souls. He is the one who can bring what's dead back to life. I was reminded this week of a song by Sufjan Stevens. If you're a certain type of evangelical Christians, you've heard a lot of Sufjan Stevens in your day. Is the song is called, All the Trees of the Field Will Clap Their Hands. And it's a, it's, the song is a reference to Isaiah 55, verse 12. And it's this glorious day when Isaiah imagines judgment being replaced by salvation. God releasing his people from their captivity to sin and all creation rejoicing in song as a result. And in the C. John Stevens song, he says, I heard from the trees a great parade. I heard from the hills a band was made. Will I be invited to the sound? Will I be a part of what you've made? This is a longing to participate in God's new creation, to be healed and renewed and set free to bear fruit and become the best version of yourself. The promise of the gospel is that all of us here have been invited to join that chorus, to become a part of what God has made. That's what Church of the Cross is, a collection of barren plants that God is turning into a forest of verdant, fruit-bearing trees. In a few minutes, we're going to receive Holy Communion like we do every week. And when you approach the Lord's table, stay with me here, remember God's promise to dig around the barren tree and put manure on its roots. It was Augustine who first reflected on the symbolic importance of manure. He said manure is a sign of humility. The lifestyle of repentance that I talked about earlier with the AA thing, the truth that we as Christians return to every single day It starts right here. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were showing no signs of turning it around, while our hearts was as uh, fertile as sandpaper, Jesus gave himself to us. And the manure spread around us is the body and blood of the one who pleads for our justification before the Father the one who sends resurrection to our arid roots, the one through whom we offer up the fruits of the kingdom to our creator. Jesus 
in this difficult text warns us about the dangers of life apart from him. But Jesus also invites us to start a new lifestyle of repentance. And most importantly, Jesus graces us with the nutrients of God's love so that we might bear fruit. We pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for teaching us and nourishing us. And we thank you, Lord, that even hard texts, texts that uh, affront my sensibilities at least, can still have words of promise and hope. I pray, Lord, that you would turn our community into a forest of fruit-bearing trees, a place where tired, hungry people can find sustenance and shade. And in this season of Lent, Lord, while we focus on repentance and good works, I pray that you would inspire us. I pray that you would empower us, Lord, to be people who evidence new creation, people who show the world at least a glimmer of what, it, of what it's like when men and women are under the liberating power of the love of God. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.